Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I want to tell you a story. It's November 5th, 2016, a few days before Election Day. I'm staring at Facebook, promising myself I'm going to delete the app once and for all from my phone today. Enough of the political echo chamber. Enough of the ranting. Then I'm sucked into a video, because that's what happens. It's CNN's Van Jones sitting in the living room of a family in Pennsylvania. Unlike me and most every other liberal coastal elite I know, he's talking to people who support Donald Trump for president, listening, trying to understand, and pulling no punches and expressing his own anger and anxiety over where our country might be headed. In the year leading up to this moment, I had seen nothing like it, and it gave me hope. I'm very happy to welcome CNN contributor and former Obama administration advisor Van Jones to think again. His new book is Beyond the Messy Truth, How We Came Apart, How We Come Together. Welcome, Van. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. How, how did we come apart? How, how are we where we are? Well, November 2016 started back in the 90s when both political parties came together and decided that we could have all these trade deals. Right. Um, and it's going to make everybody, you know, a lot better off. It turned out for some of us we're better off, but a lot of people were worse off. They said we could deregulate the banks and that would make everything wonderful, which led to the, the, the crash, which wiped out millions of homes. They said we could build prisons everywhere and make America better, which made America much worse. We could get in these dumb wars. And I mean, you go through the list. Whenever there was a bipartisan elite consensus at the top of society, right. it worked out terribly. Yeah. for tens of millions of ordinary Americans. And so when people's communities begin to fall apart, when people's hopes begin to fall apart, then there's a question, are you gonna turn on each other as Americans or are you gonna turn to each other as Americans? Um, but before you start blaming the Donald Trumps of the world, you've gotta take responsibility for the fact that both parties led us into a situation where Donald Trump was even possible, where there was that much pain right. and that much outrage and that much fear and that much concern that it was even possible. One of the things, uh, well, no, one of the several things that I respect most about you is the fact that you are one of the few people I know who is like fully committed to trying to talk across the aisle. Yes. So I want to ask you. I want to ask you about this term elite because you yes. talk about it in the book a lot, right? Yes. And we don't want to necessarily talk about workers as the proletariat mm -hmm. or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, why are you okay with that? Like, why is elite mm -hmm. fine by you? I mean, I get you. I get. Mm -hmm. I understand the criticisms you're making of the people that you're calling the elite. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it, there's an objective quality to that term in that there are some people in the country who have very high levels of education and very high levels of income right. and they slash we live very different lives right. than people who don't. Now you could make up some terms and say those people are bunny rabbits and the other people <laughs> are butterflies and you know, everybody might feel better about like some invented terms. But what, what are you trying to, why do you take except, exception? What's your fear? What's your concern about that term? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My concern, so I don't know, I don't know whether I take exception to it. My concern about it is that if the idea is dialogue across mm -hmm. ideological lines, right, mm -hmm. then sort of lumping, like the, the, the term elite mm -hmm. sounds pejorative. 
Mm -hmm. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like gentrification. Like, you know, it, it, it feels very charged, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't necessarily, like, so therefore I feel like it isn't, it, it, it isn't necessarily the best first move toward dialogue with a group of people. I, I myself mm -hmm. am surely like lumped into that category. I'm yes. educated, East Coast, yes. liberal, progressive, whatever. Yes. Yeah, people. I mean, I, and by the way, I don't deny white privilege, and I don't, I don't deny any of those things existing. I don't deny advantage, you know, mm -hmm. to that class of which I guess I am a part. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, well, yeah. I, but I tell you, it's it's hard to have a conversation without some discomfort. Um, <laughs> you know, sure. and it's usually when you're one up in the conversation that you say. Hey, can't we all just get along here? Why, you know, like men are always like, hey, why are we talking about this gender stuff? You know, uh, pe people, you know, like myself. I'm one of the most, you know, privileged people in the country. I went to a fancy Ivy League school. I get to be on TV every right. day. You know, my income is a lot higher than it used to be. Um, I can say, hey, you know, let's not talk about <laughs> any of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, what, what, but so I think it's important. There is an elite. I'm a part of it. You're a part of it. And there, and there's consequences. There are white people, there are men, there are straight people. There's consequences to being in that one-up category. And one of those consequences are blind spots. You, ha you, you inevitably, when you're one-up, you have blind spots. When you're one-down, you have sore spots. And, you know, and, and getting clear, it made perfectly good sense to the people at the top of both parties that we would do this neoliberal right. economic policy, this neoconservative, foreign policy. It right. made perfectly good sense to them. And it, it, but it turned out it was terrible for lots of people. And the people who early on in the labor movement, the peace movement, anti-poverty movements were saying, this is a terrible idea. We're drowned out. I, in the 90s, was marching against this stuff. I was in Seattle in 1999 getting tear gas, right. <laughs> fighting against this neoliberal agenda. And um, it was an agenda by, of, and for the elites. Now the elites say, oh, hey, listen, you're, if you say that, then you're just some kind of a populist madman who you know, hates everybody and is going to ruin the country. <laughs> no, hold on a second. You know, you're getting a little bit touchy here. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying you've got to take responsibility for the fact that there's a reason, Bushes, there's a reason, Clintons, that you got dumped on your ass. Right. <laughs> because you guys screwed up and you never came back before the country in a powerful way and said, you know what, we did screw up but here's the reason that we should stay in charge. Instead, they came with a bunch of happy talk and weirdness, and they got, they got, they got it, you know, what was coming to them. Gotcha. I, one, one powerful image in your book that struck me, you know, you talk, you, you talk about, like, imagine you're at a backyard party, or, you know, and half the family is leaning conservative, half the family, family is leaning liberal, and a kid falls down the well. And everyone just starts arguing, like the, maybe the conservatives complaining that the parents were too loose with the kid, and the liberals complaining that the conservatives were too tight-fisted with their money, and if or, or, or and hadn't supported the, 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 the parents enough, and mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah, and that, so can, can you talk a little bit about like what you know what that has to do with our current situation, and sort of how we work together? You know, if you have a family, yeah. and most people do, um, it turns out people don't agree on everything in a family. And uh, at the same time, uh, those differences can be a source of real strength. In my analogy about the kid falling down the, down the well, at first everybody's just you know, trying to assign blame. Right. Nobody's trying to solve the problem. 
Is, you know, the kid fell down the well because you liberals, you know, they didn't teach the kid discipline. Well, no, you know, you conservatives wouldn't pay for the, the, the sitter to watch the kid. Right. Because you're just too damn cheap. And then it's like, well, geez, well, what are we going to do? Well, you know, how are we going to get the kid out of the well? Well, you know, you've got a big truck, um, but uh, you don't have anything to pull the kid out because your truck's full of, like, you know, GMOs and crap from the grocery store. <laughs> right. And I've got a little Prius. Um, I've got a garden hose for my community garden, but my Prius is too little. Well, hold on a second. So the parents finally step in and say, this is just madness. We're going to take the liberals' uh, water hose, we're going to take the conservatives' truck, and we're going to use that to pull the baby out. And it turns out you needed both the conservative and the liberal assets to rescue the child. That's true in our country as well. I'm a strong progressive, but I've never seen a bird fly with only a left wing. Right. I've never seen a bird fly with only a right wing. You've got to have uh, both of those wings in some type of unity, in some type of unison to get anywhere. And we have now come to the place, I think, and why I wrote this book, uh, Beyond the Messy Truth, how we came apart and how we came together, is because I am trying to say without anybody changing their party affiliation, right. you stay conservative, I stay liberal, there's a ton of stuff we could get done if we would just get past this nonsense and craziness that we've you know, now gotten addicted to. Uh, nobody in e either party thinks our courts and criminal justice system works properly. Um, we could fix that tomorrow. This addiction crisis, people are dying of opioid you know, painkillers by the wheelbarrow every day. We could fix that tomorrow. I've got ideas in the book about how to do it. Yep. Nobody thinks that our kids are being prepared for the jobs of tomorrow with artificial intelligence and drones and robots. Um, I've got ideas in the book. You know, we could fix that tomorrow as well. This is stuff that is literally, I'm not talking about the stuff we're never going to agree on. Yeah, yeah. We're supposed to fight where we disagree. My problem is we've now gotten to the, to the place we won't work together even where we do agree. And that is highly dysfunctional. And we've, we've forgotten that we, need, that we need each other. Liberals don't have a monopoly on good ideas. We may uh, think we have a monopoly on good intentions, but we don't even have that. Um, conservatives don't have a monopoly either. And it's when you have constructive disagreement in a democracy that you wind up with really creative, great outcomes. It's when you have destructive disagreement, which is what we have right now, where you can't even do the good stuff that's sitting there, low-hanging fruit. Right. And that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to give people a way out of this mess. So, I mean, you agree, you, you, you basically say in the book that there's, there's a kind of heart, there's a heart of liberalism and there's a heart of conservatism. There's sort of like what they ought to be versus what they kind of are or how they've changed in our country, right? Mm -hmm. And what like I that that was a little bit new to me that those two that idea that those two opposing forces I don't know why it's new to me I guess I'm really living in a liberal bubble here but mm -hmm. like the idea that those two opposing forces are actually nest you see them I guess in some way as like fundamental human we oppositions like that yeah you know, geez man yeah listen uh, and this is where liberals really jump the shark in terms of you know, their attitude now toward conservatism. It's almost like we see the red states the way that um, colonizers see third world countries. These right. backwards, backwater, unwashed, uneducated idiots, you know, who essentially just need to be converted to the NPR religion <laughs> and, and force fed some kale 
until they can kind of rise up to our level and our standard, and we'll civilize them, and then they'll understand how we're right about everything. And the main problem with the country is them. That's the attitude that is pervasive among liberals. That's right. called elitism. Right. Okay? You know, you're looking down your nose at people, and here's the problem. People tend to resist elitist con colonial projects against them. Mm -hmm. um, you mm -hmm. know, when people show up with that attitude, you can smell it from a thousand yards away, and you can't, you can't be effective. And, you know, of course, you know, you have the same thing on the right, where, you know, you snowflakes, and, you know, they have their name calling that they do, and they're looking down their nose as well, but it tends to, for, with them to be, um, when they're doing it, the ones who do do it, sometimes racially inflected. Mm -hmm. so, you can, so you can say, well, hold on a second. Um, liberals will say, I see bigotry or bias among the Republicans. Republicans say, what are you talking about? No way! Right. I don't have a, a, a racist bone in my body. They get totally outraged. How could you say that? <laughs> but you can see it in how they, they talk. And it, all, too, all too often, you, you look at Fox News, almost every story about black people is about us being lazy criminals. And, and yet, you know, they say that they're not racist. At the same time, you listen to liberals. Almost everything we say about straight white guys, especially straight white guys from the red states, is a put down. Right. And yet we say, oh, but we're not elitist. Oh my God, you call me an elite? I'm, I've got to go back to therapy now. This is terrible. How can you say this? <laughs> but the elitism on the left and the bigotry on the right are two of the big blind spots, blind spots. that I think we've got, to, we've got to look in the mirror and start to deal with. And I talk about it very respectfully in my book. And I wanted to say one thing about this, which I think is so, the fact that we've gotten away from this is the big problem. Our kids get it right. Our kids say, Pledge of Allegiance with liberty and justice for all. See, we're brainwashing the kids, we're tricking them because liberty is a right-wing concept. Okay. And justice is a left-wing concept. Liberty says, get the government the heck out of my way. Right. Let me, myself, and I do what me, myself, and I want to do. I want to go out here, make my money, be out in the marketplace. Nobody can tell me what to do. That's liberty. Justice is that, well, hold on a second. What about the weak groups that get run over by the strong groups? What about the minority groups that get run over by the majority? You've got to worry about those, those left out. Yeah. That's justice. Well, here's the trick. Here's the genius. Here's the beauty. If you just have justice and no concern at all for liberty, we're just going to worry about those downtrodden masses. We don't care about your individual liberty at all. You get overregulation, you get totalitarianism. Right. At the same time, if you just care about liberty, get out of my way, I'm going to do whatever I want to in the marketplace you get a different type of totalitarianism. You get corporate domination. The corporations then pollute your rivers, they take over your media, they take over your government, and you're really screwed. Justice without liberty is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. Liberty without justice is a nightmare. But liberty and justice, both sides working together, right. that's what you, so now the fact that we've forgotten that is a big source of the disrespect. The disagreement will always be there, but it can, you can disagree without disrespecting. You can disagree without disregarding. And this, what the, the book is trying to remind us is, of course we're gonna disagree. Sure. I'm on the left or on the right. Disagreement, great, that's called freedom. D dictatorship, you can't disagree. Democracy, you get to, to disagree. That's the whole point, it's called freedom. But how you do it, is it constructive disagreement? Where, okay, I'm for government, you're for markets, but we keep fighting in a way, well, guess what? 
maybe there's a public-private partnership right. that's a better idea than either your free market or my big government. And now you've got a creative outcome that's better for everybody because we disagreed and because we were constructive. Or do you wind up where we are now, where even where we agree we can't work together because we hate each other? I mean, this is, I think this is a useful way to conceive of this, but like, do you, like it seems to me like neither the left nor the right has a, has a monopoly on liberty or justice in the sense that, as a value, in the sense that for progressives value individual liberty to live according to whatever your identity is, sure, to have, sure. you know, whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being reductive to, for yeah, the purpose yeah. of trying to, to, to prove a point. Is, that, it, is it way more complicated than that? Yes. Okay, all right. <laughs> but I'm trying to make a basic point yeah, here, yeah, yeah. which seems to have escaped most of the smarty pants people who are apparently are trying to lead the country on, in either party, that right. just because someone is a conservative or a liberal, that doesn't mean that they, they're your mortal enemy who are the personification of only bad things. Right. If you could only get rid of them, everything would be great. That seems to be how people are treating each other, and I'm just saying that that's kind of foolish. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is as the hashtag for the first video of the messy truth that I saw back in 2016 said, that's a recipe for civil war. I yes. mean, the, the point in which you don't want to, they're just the enemy. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> I, and I'm desperate to avoid that. Some people think I'm too kumbaya. I, I do want to point out that I, politically, I'm on the left side of Pluto, okay? I mean, yeah, yeah. you can't get further left than I am. <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I mean, the fact that Van Jones is, is out here saying, geez, guys, can we calm this down? Right, right. You know, that I've gone from being, you know, considered a, a left-wing bomb thrower in the Bay Area. I was considered a left-wing radical in the Bay Area. Okay. You gotta get up early. You gotta work hard <laughs> to be considered a left-wing radical in the Bay Area. <laughs> right. But even I now am trying to play a bridge-building role because this is about to, if we don't change course, we're gonna end up where we're headed. And where we're headed is very, very bad. Democracies can fail. They usually fail. Uh, the idea that you could have a democratic republic of 300 million people with every color, every faith, every kind of human being ever born in one country mm. and, and run an economy that's gonna respect the earth and women, and get, this is a nutty idea. If this were a space shuttle, you shouldn't get in it. It's crazy what we're trying to do. But guess what? We mostly get along. And we're the strongest country in the world. So we've been pulling off this miracle in human history. Nobody's tried to do what we're doing. Right. And we've been pulling it off, and now we've hit some turbulence, some leadership in both parties made some bad decisions, the world's changing around us, and the question is, do we turn on each other or do we turn to each other? Now, you don't have to give up your principles and your values to also look for some common ground. Newt Gingrich taught me, my good friend on the right, your 90% enemy can be your 10% friend where you right. agree. Right. We agree on criminal justice, we agree on addiction, we agree on techno technology as being a key educational component for kids. So Newt and I can work together on those issues even while we fight on 90 other issues. Are, and, and are you saying, if I understand you correctly, that basically working across party lines on those issues that people can agree on, yeah. such as the criminal justice system, the opioid epidemic, that that's the lever, basically. That's the starting place mm -hmm. to get back to some kind of functional society on the rest of it? Yeah, I mean, you gotta start someplace. So, and, and common ground is not the same as middle ground. Right. I'm not a centrist. Right. Um, in fact, I have very little use for centrists who basically just try to you know, split the baby on every issue. Um, even if the baby dies, so that's not you know that's not where I'm coming from. I'm a, I'm a proud progressive, 
But you know, common ground shows up in very strange places. Common ground shows up in morgues where you've got Democrat and Republican kids dying of drug overdoses from coast to coast. Yeah. Common ground can show up in a prison uh, a waiting room where you've got people going to prison for, for dumb reasons. You know, common ground shows up a lot of places. It's not middle ground, but common ground. Yeah. What you, what you want to do is keep the inflammation down around really serious issues where we're going to fight. We're not going to agree on immigration. We're not going to agree on health care. We're not going to agree on a bunch of stuff. We're going to fight up over that. We're going to vote against each other. Guns. Guns. We're not going to agree on that. <laughs> yeah. We're going to vote against each other. We're going to fight hard. But you can't only fight and have a country. You also have got to identify a few areas where you can work together. That way, you reduce the chances that you wind up in some kind of a civil war or some kind of a dysfunctional failed state, which is also an option, um, because you are at least somewhere greasing and building the muscles of cooperation. And the muscles of cooperation are rapidly atrophying in the country. Right. Your, your best possible outcome is a dysfunctional failed state if you keep on that pathway. But the last stop on that train is a civil war. And I'm trying to avoid one. And that's why that's, that's, the book is literally a cure for the crazy. I am on a crusade against the crazy. And the book is literally a cure for it if people give it a chance. Yeah, you offer some very specific and practical solutions. When, when it comes to the opioid epidemic, I want to ask, you know, um, with this issue of like drug companies and the sort of vet vested interest that they have in making money off of things such as opioids, that would seem to be a somewhat right-leaning defense position to defend. From the conservative standpoint, like how do you, it's, well, it's well, to, yeah, how do you, you know, well, how do you get over all, that? How do you, well, you know? The, the, the reality is that there are so many dumb government regulations in place. Um, here's, here's the kind of stuff that would drive anybody crazy, but especially a conservative. A doctor in America can give you as many pills as he or she wants to for pain. Right. Here's a big wheelbarrow full of, of, <laughs> of painkillers yeah. because you got your tooth pulled. Right. And get that person addicted to those painkillers. If the doctor then realizes that she shouldn't have done that and she wants to give you a prescription for drugs to help you get off medically assisted treatment, to help you get off those drugs, she's radically limited in the number of people that she can do that to. So she can, she can literally addict 10,000 people, but the government will only allow her to uh, use medically assisted treatment for like 30. Because it's relatively new and the FDA regulations are in, in place? Or because whatever, for, like, for whatever reason, and this yeah, stuff yeah. is always ignorant, but for whatever reason, <laughs> there's more, there, there was a fear that the replacement drugs would wind up being abused. We're talking about like methadone and yeah, that kind they, of thing? Yeah, and, and, other, and other stuff as well, and some of the newer stuff. And so entrepreneurs, seeing this as a problem, have created startup little medical companies, little, little baby pharma companies, where it's like, you know, there's, there's injectables, there's implantables, there's mm. all kind of stuff, and they still can't get the approval. The drug courts still try to insist that people quit cold, tur cold turkey, so people are doing detox and die. In other words, what's, what happened, happened to, to Prince, my, you know, my good friend, yeah. is that you, know, you, you have somebody detox, you, you give them a shot of Narcan, whatever you gotta do, and then they try to go cold turkey on opioids, even though it's been proven to change your brain chemistry, 
And then when they relapse, they relapse back to their old dosage, which is now too high for them and kills them. So we, so we literally have the government between the, the, between the drug courts and the FDA forcing on the country a detox and die model when there's 20 smarter ways to do it. And this, methadone, of course, is imperfect. I, 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 yeah. I, like you, have a personal connection to this issue. I think my sister mm -hmm. probably died as a result of methadone uh, after many years of addiction to opioids because of phantom limb pain because of an amputation, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. due to a childhood cancer. And they, they were, the medical examiner was unable to determine precisely the cause, but sure. she was on methadone plus other things. And methadone itself is pretty yeah. nasty. So like, yeah. First yeah. of all, my, my condolences to you and to your family. Um, these type of stories and heartbreaks and tragedies are happening in red states and blue states. Uh, when it was narcotics, we said it, it was mostly hitting black folk. Right, right, right. We said everybody go to prison They're and screw criminals, you. They're all criminals. They're all criminals. This is a moral failure. Right. Now we're finally having a conversation about addiction, at least in the opioid context, it's a little bit more humane. We should expand that to include all drugs. But my only point is simply this. We could fix this tomorrow. Does that mean we could literally fix this by the end of the year in terms of moving away from this detox and die model and moving toward a much more pro-entrepreneurship, smarter regulated, pro-innovation model and avoid a bunch of funerals. But we're not gonna do it because we're arguing about tweets and we're arguing about stupid stuff. And this is where, you know, for me, this crusade I'm on, yeah, yeah. you know, this, this mobilization against the madness here, you know, with, with lovearming.org and the Dream Corps, you know, we really, I, I know for a fact that there's some stuff we're just gonna fight about, but we can't fight about everything all the time or we won't have a country. Now, in this ugly, messy reality, like, and this crusade, how do you, like, you're up in it all the time. Like, how do you, how do you maintain any sense of optimism, of hope? Like, where does that come from? Like, where do you, you know, the, the vision that this is actually, you know, that there's a light at the end of that tunnel? I mean, where does it come from? It comes from life. I mean, I'm saying, what keeps you going with yeah. this thing? Like, is it because it's necessary and you just... You know, I actually think about it the other way. How do the people who are so hateful or so depressed or so bitter or so permanently outraged keep going? I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's the better question. I don't know how people can just get up every day and be mad at Donald Trump um, and, 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 and think that they're going to have a healthy life or be happy or get anything done. Right. Um, it's become the national addiction on the part of liberals to just be, you know, outraged by Donald Trump. Right. And he's, he's a master and just, you know, treating us like ferrets and just throwing shiny objects or we just run all around. And at the end of the day, does any, is anybody happy? Have right. we achieved anything? So listen, this, this, this last year, uh, two things I'm proud of at the Dream Corps. Yeah. Um, our lovearmy.org uh, campaign, we got 20,000 coal miners in, West Virginia, in, in Appalachia mainly, their healthcare benefits back. Big fight, you know, with right alongside the coal miners. Also this year, our Cut 50 campaign got five bills passed through the California state legislature, which if the governor signs them, will uh, go a long way toward fixing our juvenile justice system. Right. So we're literally the same organization, we're working with Appalachian coal miners and African-American Latino you know, parents with kids in jail. Mm. And we're winning. That, the book is full of stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Even in the era, age of Trump, even in this moment, there are opportunities to reach across lines of race, region, party, identity, ideology, faith. 
and get stuff done and remember that one weird orange lunatic, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in, in, in one building is not, should not be allowed to steal, steal the joy of the entire country. And the energy to do, yeah. as you say, to get things done. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, yeah, yeah, so yeah. people say, well, how, I mean, I don't understand, like, the work I do is self-sustaining because it's based on love, it's based on empathy, it's based on compassion, it's based on looking for the good, it's based on, on doing hard work with, with yeah, big yeah. payoffs. Everybody else seems to be on the pathway to, to, to burnout. Well, I guess speaking, you know, I, I don't know that I'm on the pathway to burnout, but maybe speaking for that voice, I, I, I as a devil's advocate, I, I think the problem for, for folks who are feeling all this very hard is that they're looking at the big picture and they're looking at the mess and they're seeing a structural what looks like a structural deformity or some telltale signs of doom, as opposed to what you're saying, describing, which is like going into the trenches and trying to do whatever is possible. Like, as opposed to worrying every day about, about stuff where the grand trajectory anything. of but, society but that's is just, headed. It's just, I'm going to tell you this, and I don't mean if anybody. It's <laughs> just a stupid way to live. How can you sit up here and, and you don't get any of these days back, you don't get any of these heartbeats back, you're gonna burn through four years worrying about stuff you can't control anyway. Right. See, the problem is people had this fantasy during Obama years that we were all sort of, you know, Obama's better, Obama's yeah. in-laws or something like that. Right, right. And so we kind of lived vicariously through him. We weren't building a political party, obviously, because we lost a thousand seats in you know federal and state representation, Democrats. The whole eight years, everybody was running around fat, dumb, and happy, as we, as we say in the South, um, about Obama. We were losing. We lost a thousand seats, a thousand seats. We lost the House, and everybody's still happy. We lost the Senate, everybody's still happy. Supreme Court hanging by a thread, everybody's still happy. A thousand seats, two thirds of the state legislatures, two thirds of the governorships, all lost under Obama, and everybody's happy because people were not in reality. They were in their own little happy Obama bubble. And then that bubble hit the sidewalk and popped, and now we're in reality. This is the reality. <laughs> there's, a, there's a political party, Republicans, with actual movements going for actual power. There's a bunch of us critiquing each other online. And that's what's going on. Right. So if you would like to have a country that you would be proud of, America is hard to do. Yeah. Democracy is not an app that you download and hit you know, every four years and get what you want. Democracy is hard to do, America is hard to do, and we're gonna have to get out here and do some real hard work. Some of it is gonna be the, the defense of our, of our democracy, of, of vulnerable people, um, the so-called resistance, but you can't only be in defense mode because he's still setting the terms of debate. You gotta pick stuff that you believe in, regardless of who's in power, right. and move toward that. Here's the other thing too, some people don't have time to us political stuff. Well then what I would say to you is simply this, in your own home, in your own heart, in this book we have tremendous resources. If you, for Republicans and Democrats, groups you can join, books you can read, hmm. documentaries you can watch, from both sides, right. podcasts you can listen to, from both sides. Why do we do that? Because part of it is, People sitting around saying, I just don't understand, I just don't understand, I just don't understand. Well, damn it, get some understanding. <laughs> How about that? I mean, is it that goddamn hard? Get some actual understanding so then we can start doing stuff that makes sense. If you keep doing 
well, the reason I say the crazy has gone everywhere is because if you keep doing the same thing, you're gonna get the same outcome. Right. If the liberals and progressives keep looking down their nose at every red state voter, right. only following other liberals, listening to other liberals, and then being baffled by the country, they're gonna get snuck up on and beat again. Right. And you'll have eight years of Donald Trump, which it's I don't want. Time to get smart. Yes, yeah, get smart. Focused, yeah. Smart, yeah. focused, and quit wasting your life about stuff you have no control over. It's just this consumer, voyeur culture where people thought that because they liked somebody who was in the White House, that the whole country was great and they had a lot of power. You had no power then. <laughs> Obama, you didn't, you had no power then. Um, Obama was stopped at every corner mm -hmm. trying to advance the agenda. Um, he was just a genius at figuring out ways to get some things done, but he wasn't able to get the things done he wanted. And if Hillary Clinton had gotten in there, you probably would have had a civil war because you'd have had a whole bunch of people out there. You'd have had an armed Tea Party type response of people saying the system is rigged and now we think they're gonna come for our guns or impose socialism or whatever it is. And so let's just not forget that this was in the cards yeah. and this breakdown was, was inevitable at some point given the amount of change that we have to manage as a country. But out of every breakdown can come a breakthrough. And that breakthrough comes from first looking within, not blaming the other person, not trying to assign blame. The breakthrough comes from taking responsibility for whatever part of it is our part, mm -hmm. and then improving from there. I think that's a good place for us to uh, transition to the second part of the show where we have surprise conversation starters from cool. Big Things Archives. Yeah. These were picked by the producers, uh, the video producers, and I have not seen them and neither has Van, so let's see what we have. So this is Cass, Cass Sunstein, mm -hmm. legal scholar. Sure. The video is called uh, Libertarian Paternalism, Eat Well, Retire Rich, and Feel the Freedom. So uh, a number of years ago, um, Richard Thaler, a terrific economist, and I were talking about public policy and also about human behavior. And the idea developed that you can have a form of paternalism that preserves freedom of choice. So it insists, first and foremost, on people being able to go their own way if they want, but it acknowledges that some of us maybe don't know how to get where we want to go, or that some of us may be focused on today and not next year, or that some of us might be unrealistically optimistic, or some of us might not know a whole lot, for example, about health insurance or savings plans or about how to manage our credit card. So the idea developed, which uh, wouldn't have sold any books, but we use it anyway, called libertarian paternalism, and it, we changed that to a simpler form, nudge. And the idea behind libertarian paternalism or nudge is that you have things that are like a GPS device. So a GPS device is a form of libertarian paternalism. If you don't like the instructions you're getting from the uh, little voice that's coming in your car, you can say, I want the scenic route or I prefer a direction which is more familiar to me and know better than you do given what I care about but it's steering you in a direction which it has information suggesting is the best way to get you where you want to go. Now, we can all use a GPS device in a lot of places, and this is the idea of libertarian paternalism. So if you get a credit card bill and it has some information about what happens if you don't pay the full amount, 
meaning you're going to start getting charged interest. That is like a GPS device in the sense that it doesn't force you to do anything, but it tells you a little bit about how to get to what is probably your preferred destination, which is saving money. You might have also a warning on a cigarette package or a warning on uh, medicines. And those things are liberty-preserving because you can uh, do whatever you want, really. But it is uh, steering you like a GPS device in one direction rather than another. Cass Sunstein is pretty amazing. I was actually in the White House with him okay. um, at the start of the Obama administration, and that's the, the kind of creativity that I think is needed. Of course, uh, Richard Thaler just got the Nobel uh, Prize in Economics right. here recently, so people other than you and I think that he's amazing. Or, um, but look, you know, here's what I think. Giving people both more control over what they do and better, more useful information and signals is inarguably a great path forward. Right. And uh, sometimes it takes a, an idea like that a while to percolate out into the system. You know, the old kind of command and control models or just do whatever the hell you want to do models, you know, they still have a lot of purchase. But I expect as we go forward, behavioral economics, which is another way to talking about what he's, what, what, another way to reference what he's talking about. Right. Um, is going to just you know get bigger and bigger. I think it works well with the kind of big data economy that we are developing, you know, and it's kind of a way for big data to be useful and helpful, but not to be dominating. And so I, I, like I think what you the said. fear. I feel like I mean the fear would be that like who is programming the apps, mm -hmm. like what you know what kinds of invisible control are being manifested that people you know, like even if they have the freedom to shut the thing off, yeah. they don't even know the ways in which their lives are being kind of well, guided. That's, that's, that's the paternalism part. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, um, and, and, and unfortunately, we, we already live in that world. I mean, listen, I mean, just to bring it back to politics before we go, everybody I know in Silicon Valley is outraged by Donald Trump, hate Donald Trump, think Donald Trump is terrible. He's dividing the country. Well, he's dividing the country. That's kind of true. I mean, as best he can, and he's, he's pretty good at it. But so are they. Yeah. Because when I go on Twitter or I go on Instagram and I follow two liberals, they make a suggestion. Follow two more. Follow 20 more. Sure. Follow 200 more. Suggested followers for you. 3,000 more. At no point does the algorithm ever say, excuse me, Mr. Jones, <laughs> you've now followed 4,000 liberals. <laughs> Might you consider following one, even one, sir, conservative? Nope. It's just gonna keep marching you down that direction. And, this, and for your right-wing counterpart at work, you know, she's getting pushed the opposite direction. Right. That's not Donald Trump. That's Silicon Valley figuring out a way to kind of keep you addicted to your device by making sure you only get data that you like. Right. And so that's all around us. Yeah. Um, you know, what Cass was trying to figure out, you know, at the level of government policy, um, are there things that could be done or required or encouraged or or rewarded that might get better information uh, to more people. Right. But anyway, I, I am, I've appreciated the chance to, to talk with you, I tell you, and um, the level of creativity that you're seeing in behavioral economics, the level of creativity that you're seeing, frankly, in a lot of the protests, it comes when you've got different ideas rubbing up against each other, right. different values rubbing up against each other, new challenges 
coming over the horizon, forcing you to think and rethink. That's what is going to get us through this. If we just retreat into our own increasingly um, homogenous comfort zones, then what happens is you'll never have enough creativity and dynamism to come up with really breakthrough answers. And so that's why, listen, I literally deliberately went on Instagram, went on Twitter, hit search and search for white nationalist and followed a bunch of them. Uh, right wing, followed a bunch of them. Mm. Conservative, followed a bunch of them. Yeah, you um, mentioned Ann Coulter as, an, sure. as someone to follow. Like, yeah, sure. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it's mixed in with all the other stuff that I like, you know, yeah, science yeah. fiction and liberals and stuff like that. But it means that whenever I go on Instagram, every fifth or sixth one is one I really don't agree with. But it helps me because I suddenly realize, hey, wait a minute, there's a completely different point of view on this thing that Trump just did. There's a completely different way of thinking about and seeing this whole situation, which I am now reminded of. And it, it kind of keeps me a little bit more limber because I hear all day long from people I don't agree with, as opposed to my friends who literally only follow liberals and then can't understand why the country is the way it is. Well, you're trained as an attorney, and, and uh, one of the things that I, I liked that you said in the book was that when you met um, Newt Gingrich, mm-hmm. you had read all of his books yes. before meeting him yes. because it was obviously important to you to, to learn point by point how to go back against the arguments that mm-hmm. you, degree, you, you yeah. disagree with, not, yeah. and not simply to start shaking your fist. And, yeah, and, and, ca- and calling names. Yeah. And also, I was influenced by Newt as well. I mean, you go in and you start trying to, to fight somebody, you're like, you know what? Some of these ideas are, 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 are <laughs> kind of hard to argue mm-hmm. with. Um, the idea that many liberals and progressives are insufficiently passionate about the United States, the good parts about the country, you know, there's there's some truth to that. Right. Um, when, when Patriotism is like a dirty yeah, word. Yeah. When, when I was in, when I was in my in my twenties, you know, the last thing I would think about myself being was a patriot, um, because I was you know hardcore left wing activist. And part of in the old days, a part of the water you drunk when you took a swig off of that was a lot of you know America's bad stuff. Well, in fighting with Newt in my mind, I came to a different position, which is that America is two things. It's both the founding reality, right. which was bad, slavery, women can't vote, property owners can't vote, Native Americans being wiped out, you go down the list. The founding reality was bad, but the founding dream, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all are created equal, the founding dream was good. And so in my mind, I'm a patriot because I'm trying to close the gap every day between the ugliness of the founding reality and the beauty of the dream. When my conservative friends and opponents tell me, quit talking about slavery, quit talking about racism, quit talking about sexism, quit talking about all that painful stuff, you know, we got to move forward. I say, no, no, I'm never going to deny the pain. I'm never going to deny the pain, but I'm not going to let the pain have the last word either. I'm going to insist that we tell the truth about where we've been, and I'm also going to insist that we tell the truth about where we could go. And in that, in that way, I can be both a progressive and a patriot. All the stuff like that's all through the book. Yeah, yeah. But it gives you a place to stand as opposed to, well, now I'm a liberal, so I have to be against my own country. That's really stupid. You can't influence any other country. So <laughs> right, right. You, may, you, know, you, may, you may as well take a stand for the one that you can't influence. Van Jones, thank you so much for being with me today. Yeah, thank I really you. enjoyed it. Appreciate you.
And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Um, we have had the Facebook group Friends of Think Again up and running for about a month now, and it's getting really populous and really full of intelligent and interesting chatter. Please feel free to join us. Just search for Friends of Think Again on Facebook. And if you're enjoying the show, uh, if you're new to it, if you've been with us for a while, but you've been quiet and you want to tell me anything about why you're listening, what the show means in your life or any other thing, um, just email me at jason at bigthink.com. I love to hear from people and I'm always writing back. So that would be great. We'll be back next week with another interesting conversation and I hope you can join us. Yeah.